Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And joining us today on the other side of the mic, managing partner, founder mm-hmm. of Volt Capital, Suna. Now, before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022 with a total of $1.2 million in prizes across Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. The wait is over. Tron Grand Hackathon presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondao.org. This episode is also brought to you by Ledin. From Bitcoin and USDC savings accounts to Bitcoin-backed loans, Ledin's financial services enable you to benefit from your holdings today without selling your Bitcoin. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. All right. Once again, we are very excited to welcome Suna. So good to see you. So good to be here. Um, so you have two funds, you gate crashed the crypto world in 2021 with the announcement of the first fund, you launched the second fund in May. What are you observing right now in the venture capital landscape? It's a good question. So there's a lot of exciting things happening, but for a little bit of context. So I've been in the space since 2014 and so have been on the other end, also operating yeah. for, for years. I think I think we can call you an OG. <laughs> um, being an OG, you can't call your... It's, it's like being a hacker. You're yeah. only really a hacker. Someone else calls you a hacker. You can't call yourself a hacker. Um, and so we ended up taking a lot of that operational expertise and bringing it to founders to really help them because we've been in the trenches. So we have first fund, we launched, uh, we started deploying in 2020, but formally announced in 2021 and then launched fund two just a few months ago. Um, the VC landscape, so if we look at it from two different perspectives, one, the macro, which crypto is increasingly tied to, um, things have certainly slowed down um, from a, uh, just price froth and, and frankly, retail activity perspective. I mean, almost overnight, a lot of the retail demand dropped, but what we're seeing now is the ratio between builders and operators, uh, versus the masses and, and retail is increasing. And so that drives where founders are building now. So Mm -hmm. we're typically seeing more infrastructure projects because that's where the needs are. And, um, we can dive into what what kind of infrastructure projects. Consumer fake focus plays, uh, marketplaces, um, if it's, it's tough to gauge whether or not something's gaining traction if no one's there. So if you look at the winners of this past cycle, you look at Uniswap, you look at SuperRare, you look at OpenSea. Yeah. If you, have you actually looked at the data of what their volumes looked like in, in 2018, 2019, for those who go this far? I mean, you're looking at 10 per, up 10% one week in mm-hmm. terms of volume, down 15% the next week, up 20%, down another 5%, 10%. And that fluctuation is not happening over a couple months or it's not a bad quarter. I mean, we're talking years. Yeah. So the tenacity that you have to have as a founder 
to continue building, even though the data doesn't match up. Um, you have to be very thesis-driven. You have to be very convinced in your because vision of no what the world's going to shake out. Exactly. There's no predictability. There is no sustainable, predictable, or frankly, um, quick feedback loop on how you're doing. So you have to be stubborn in your thesis that this is how the world is going to shake out. And then on the other side of that, that means VCs have to also buy into that vision because they are making decisions to invest that aren't based on current traction or adoption trends, but are rather uh, thesis driven. So they have to buy that this is how the world's going to shake out. So if you bought that there would be a marketplace for NFTs and everybody would be speculating or using or playing with NFTs um, and you bet on uh, NFT marketplaces that just survive long enough, you came on the other you came out the other end uh, winning. But it's almost like being an investor in very, very early stage startups, but they have billion dollar unicorn valuations. That's a trickier job. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, there are metrics or proxies to be able to assess what current or perhaps latent demand is. But when you're looking at really nascent categories like NFTs, I mean, truthfully, the benchmark we had was CryptoKitties. Mm -hmm. And that almost seemed like a flash in the pan at the time, right? It was nowhere near as, as huge an opportunity set it is now. So infrastructure is typically where uh, the focus changes for founders um, during a bear market. But we're also seeing... Um, you know, tremendous amounts of activity and progress on the gaming front. Mm -hmm. So gaming is likely going to be the key or critical way that users onboard to crypto next cycle. If you look at the macro, the TAM for gaming, I mean, by 2025, supposed to be pulling in somewhere north of 250, 300 billion and growing at a 13% CAGR. And that's just traditional gaming. Mm -hmm. um, crypto is this natural next step for games. If you think about the most recent unlocks, so phase one of gaming was really based around business models that had price, uh, that were pretty uh, inelastic, right? So if you bought a gaming CD and you were a power user and played for a thousand hours, you're still buying the same $60 CD as somebody who played for five minutes and quit, right? There's no way to adjust based on user behavior. Um, with the advent of digital goods, premium services, different tiers of games, um, we saw tremendous amounts of revenue come in because there were different tiers of users. And the whales, right, that was like the mm -hmm. advent of the whale, that top 1% to 2% of gamers that um, are paying to augment their gaming experience is really the revenue driver. And then you can give out free games, banking on the fact that those you know, that kind of cult that you formed around your mm -hmm. game is where most of the revenue is going to be driven. And so the natural next step is to take a lot of the shadow marketplaces that are formed around digital goods uh, in these games and bring them to the forefront and vertically integrate them in a lot of these crypto games. So that's another North Star that, that we're tracking to. But how does that spill into the broader crypto ecosystem in terms of if we see adoption in crypto gaming we onboard hundreds of millions of people who are playing games that are operating based on some form of blockchain. Does that, does that value spill into the world of Coinbase, centralized exchanges, decentralized exchanges, the price of blue chip crypto tokens? Like if gaming continues to grow at the rate it is mm -hmm. and has these crypto trappings to it, 
does that does that spill into other segments of the market, and how does it? Yeah, definitely. It depends on how closed cl- closed of a ecosystem it is or open. But I mean, we're already seeing evidence of this, right? If you looked at Stepin introducing their decks, or you looked at Axie and other um, uh, tokens that were pegged to or tethered to more fast casual games. Um, that had an X to earn model, you were seeing them then translate onto different um, marketplaces where you could mm. actually exchange goods. So there was actual value to it outside of the outside of the game. But ultimately, it comes down to uh, the game designer's uh, model and, and architecture of the actual game. And so uh, infrastructure, gaming, and uh, the other trend I'm seeing is second order thinking to um, to primitives that were finally established. So one one interesting or one anecdote of this is just being able to move NFTs between buyers and sellers, right? And having marketplaces um, established was a huge win for the space this most recent cycle. But now we're already seeing a wave of founders that are building with the second order thinking of, okay, now that NFTs are here, now the NFT marketplaces, how are we preventing fraud? How are we thinking about security? How are we thinking about content moderation? And so there are companies like Yakoa that are building that direction that employ AI to make sure that um, what buyers are buying and so selling it's almost is like w- there. one one sort of track for you is investing in the companies that are solving problems that stem from the success of the companies that have come before. Absolutely, it's this huge design error. It, it, it just op- it completely unlocks these adjacent markets that didn't exist. Um, it, it had to be a priori. You had to solve you know this problem first for all these different businesses to spawn off of that and, and really improve the user experience. But in general, us as a venture capital firm, we invest in um, NFTs, DAOs, um, DeFi products, payments, and the infrastructure that powers them all. Mm-hmm. What happened to DeFi? DeFi is experiencing a bit of a correction. Um, so we saw V1 where there were blue chips that really cemented their position in the space. And then... Um, there was a wave in which the word Ponzinomics was legitimized mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and people were saying that Let's talk seriously about that. in conversation. I, I feel like um, in 2017, if you were discussing or talking about a crypto project and you wanted to sort of chastise it, you'd say it's a Ponzi. In 2021, that, the was, the, that was the first question you'd ask. Is right. it a Ponzi? I, <laughs> right. Oh, perfect. Let me get my checkbook out. If it wasn't a Ponzi, if you weren't in Ponzi's, there was almost something wrong with you. We like redefine the word. Yeah, for, look at look at the six thousand percent APY. How could you not? You know, it's, it's a fantastic Ponzi, mouth, right? Right. Uh, what's been hilarious to me is a, a lot of the a Monday morning quarterbacks that are talking about how um, all of a sudden we realize these returns are coming from risk. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course, these rates are coming from risk. You're, you're taking on an insane amount of risk. Oftentimes, um, you know, they're, they're typically in the form of Ponzi, and then having interest rates reflect that uh, to match. And, and so, um, we are gratefully and thankfully out. I, I believe out of that cycle, out of that phase, and now we're giving way and have really cleared the the path for more sustainable, level-headed, disciplined founders to build in DeFi. Did you ever stake on PickleSwap or any of those <laughs> platforms uh, from the heady days of DeFi summer? Uh, no, we did not. Uh, we did not participate in those, but we did invest in um, a DeFi-focused products and projects that are focused on um, facilitating or augmenting under-collateralized loans mm. um, by 
using uh, something akin to a credit score, like company cred. Um, and we're going to see a lot of the similar models. So, so there's a, this interesting critique in crypto where people say with almost a distaste in their mouth that we're just seeing a lot of the same DeFi projects or primitives be copy-pasted from Ethereum onto Solana, onto now Aptos or Siri or others. Yes. But here's the thing is the actual financial instruments that have existed since the beginning of the recognition of assets or currency mm-hmm. are fundamentally the same. Like we've had, we've had decades and centuries to, to figure these out and they oftentimes, what works, we've coalesced around a handful of project, products or financial instruments that work. And so of course we're going to see that, uh, see them created around different assets. So you'll have uh, collateralization, you'll have lending, you'll have payments, you'll have um, this really select number of, of uh, uh, financial products and their derivatives that work. And, and so I actually don't have a problem seeing those same things. And, and in fact, it, the, the playbook is, is, is pretty much th- thought out and, and pretty well, much proven. Wouldn't the TAM be much lower if it's really just limited to one specific blockchain? Yeah, and, and that's largely a consequence of also the number of projects and developers that would develop if it's only limited to one blockchain, right? Maybe you like a different language, maybe you like a different ecosystem, maybe you don't feel welcome to contribute to this open source project, but you prefer another. And so when you increase that opportunity set from a developer and founder standpoint, then that can also translate to uh, more consumers because you've just increased the surface area of companies and projects and protocols being built. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022. There are a total of $1.2 million in prizes up for grabs in Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. So what are you waiting for? Join Tron for an opportunity to showcase your work, win funding for your project, and network with other builders in the community. Tron Grand Hackathon, presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondow.org. I also want to give a shout out to Ledin. Ledin, Bitcoin-backed loans and savings by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. As we've seen, not all digital asset lenders are created equal. Ledin prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with its robust risk management approach. That is why Ledin doesn't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation strategies with its clients' assets and only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. Ledin is also dedicated to transparency, which is why they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. Uh, have you noticed that custody is becoming hot again? Yeah. Or just infrastructure, I guess, custody Exactly, falls that under. feeds back into our infrastructure point is that um, you're now building where there's demand, right? Founders typically build where they're going to be able to get that feedback that, that where, where traction currently is. And so if you look at where the center of gravity is right now for crypto, um, because retail has largely evaporated. It's and, and to be sure, it's nowhere near where it was last cycle. So over time, we're certainly growing. But um, the center of gravity really and the attention and the spotlight are on other founders who are building crypto startups. They're on builders that are, need dev tools to enhance the uh, DX or developer experience. 
um, additionally, it's institutions, mm-hmm. right? And so now institutions have a second to breathe and like looking around at their investing stack or their tech stack and like, wait a minute, um, we, we want the ability to do X, Y, Z. Like how do we really prepare ourselves and position ourselves for the next bull market and get the best um, in-house experience and internal tooling to to free us up to do what we do best, right? Which is research, invest, and, and back the best founders. And so that's why you're typically seeing that shift to infrastructure projects, both on the developer side and on the investing side as well. The nature of what an institution is or what we think of when we use, when we invoke that word, used to be the banks. Now it's all sorts of different types of companies who are operating at least on the periphery of this market, the yes. Gucci's of the world. Yes, Colleen had Colleen, mentioned that on, on your episode. That's right. Yeah. Do you share a similar thesis? Look, what I think is happening is we're conflating institutions with incumbents. And for anyone in crypto, incumbents is really anyone that's been around more than 11 years, right? Mm-hmm. So, so any any uh, larger corporation or firm or company that's been around longer than our space has been around, we we typically uh, hand wave and, and call an institution. But regardless, the point is is that they're they really are all here. Um, getting into crypto this cycle for anyone who did jump in this cycle is probably the best risk adjusted time to get in because from um, well the risk got all sucked out of the system. Well, that's the thing is that there still is significant amount of risk, so potential to um, if there are so, so there's still tremendous amounts of risk. Technical but risk. The downside is is more capped than it ever been in, yes. in previous cycles, right? Fair enough, yeah. So it's this it's it's and it's going to continue. That's just a trend that's going to continue every cycle, but um, it's it's an incredible time where it, I, I do not think anyone with a straight face can say that crypto is a flash in the pan, whereas that was a major concern last cycle is that maybe maybe this thing was just a flash in the pan. Well, well, that was because of the nature of the broader economic picture, right? It wasn't like crypto was going down while everything else was going down. It was going down while everything was st- relatively steady. And that's where it kind of created this more existential question of, will this thing exist? Whereas now everything looks horrible. Every chart, Coinbase's chart is bad, Netflix's chart is bad, Bitcoin's right. chart is bad. Right. And so when you look at how uh, how how much we've we've drawn down versus the others, we're actually doing quite well and we're sitting quite pretty. But um, in addition to that, just the number of developers in the space was a fraction of what it is now. Just so many people. The institutional legitimacy that comes with having those partners and those distribution channels, a fraction of what we had. I mean, we are in a tr- we are in a completely different world than we were the cycle before. It's it's wild. We were just joking about this before we turned on the mics, but somehow. Circle, who is our gracious host for this week, is 900 people. I feel like that was the entire crypto market four years ago. <laughs> it's 900 people. Absolutely, absolutely. There's also this stage, like when you're a crypto company, that you hit like an inflection. Maybe it's 50 people or 100, and then like there's normies that you have to hire right. at that point, and it's like. Then there's a point at which there's more normies than crypto people. Yes. Crypto people are a very specific yes. type of mental, mentally deranged. We operate on a different plane. <laughs> yeah, our brains operate <laughs> on a different, different plane. plane. Um, in, in fact, we saw this with Eternal September too. 
So when um, people were still beginning to use Usenet and early iterations of the internet, mm -hmm. um, oftentimes we would see a spike in number of users every September. And the reason was because that was a freshman cohort class that was coming into college <laughs> and they were all using the internet, right? And then there was one September where, where there was a spike and it just, we reached escape velocity and, and the internet really became, it started it was what like became, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. It was the it was, audience, the listener can't cannot see what see I'm doing your gesticulations, with my hands. Yeah. But, but, I'll, <laughs> but we'll let them know that you modeled exactly what that growth for uh, the early internet looked like. Can I ask you, maybe it's a weird question. Um, so many folks, especially out here, there's like two, there's like two classes, right? There's the incumbents, to use your word, and this new class of venture capitalists. And you're, you're in the latter. Um, and I believe you weren't, you know, like some of these folks from Sequoia or A16Z, you weren't investing at the time of the internet hitting the mainstream unless you're secretly 50 years old without me knowing. <laughs> um, do you feel like that puts you at a disadvantage or an advantage because maybe you don't have some of the sort of, um, the history can sometimes also add perspective and context, but sometimes serve as a, might might sort of instill some level of blind spots or, or you know, corrupt your thinking in some ways. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Is that a weird question? No, 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 it's a, it's a very fair question. Um, how much does having that existing context about the history of the internet or recent digital revolutions um, influence the decision we make moving forward for better mm -hmm. or for worse? And I guess you have to be a student of history. Precisely. So that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say is that documentation exists. And we being in Silicon Valley are so fortunate to have incredible uh, mentors and investors. I mean, Mark Andreessen, who played a huge hand in what modern day internet looks like today. And um, you know, Chris is he Dixon, an investor? Mm-hmm. As well as Chris Dixon um, and 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 Elad Gill and all these incredible investors who'd been around at the early early internet consumer early internet in general um, that have the scar tissue have been through the motions and have seen this and, and being able to hear their stories of how they navigated these markets um, how they navigated technological shifts um, also understanding the uh, also reading um, history of open source. Right, not only uh, the, the creation of the internet, but how open source developed over time. I mean, there's so many resources to paint a pretty deep, rich picture of what came before us. And at the same time, we have the luxury and to be and, and the ability to be bold and fresh and new in our decisions because we don't have that scar tissue, because we don't have that existing baggage of what's come before. We aren't scared, right? This is very fresh. This is new. <laughs> like the future is bright. The world is our oyster. <laughs> future is now the future is now so what do you think makes for a good venture capitalist um, network is a huge component but what what sort of what do you think is the real driver of outsized returns so your only job as an investor really it boils down to improving the odds mm-hmm is improving the odds of success for the companies that you invest in and the founders that you back and there are a few ways to do this. Um, the first one is by um, uh, helping the founder 
from a partnerships and integration standpoint. So the go-to-market strategy and business expansion. Um, secondly, feedback on the product. Um, we are firm believers in using the product before we invest um, and, and being power users of the products that we invest in. Um, and Super important. Right. And then I think another piece that's pretty underrated is being a found, having been a founder yourself. Mm -hmm. So everyone that we have joined the Volt Capital team, uh, myself included, have started companies or have started NFT projects or have kind of this founder builder DNA in them where they've started something and, and, and know like that the cost of starting something great is temporary humiliation or embarrassment, right? Because you're starting something new. Um, without any validation or signal to go off of. They know what it's like to be uh, making decisions where you're the key stakeholder and there's no one else that you can blame if something goes wrong but yourself. It's a lot of the the soft, intangible things that come with just being on the other side of the table when you're in the arena that that you just don't get when you're when you aren't. Mm -hmm. When you don't have that history. Right. I I'm going to be true. on stage with Amy Wu. Okay. So what are you going to ask her? Uh, let me take a look. Um, what are you observing um, in the crypto venture capital landscape? Incredible. Right? <laughs> That's a great start. That's an insanely... <laughs> don't don't start with the hardballs. Um, I want to know how much she's deployed. $2 billion. That was, I think, the entire uh, TAM of crypto just, just a cycle ago, right? <laughs> I know. I mean, if you add up like everyone's portfolio, like is the market even bigger than $2 billion? Like what? Well, that is just an insane amount of capital need to deploy. And almost Herculean. Like I, I, I imagine it'd be like quite fun to only have like $100 million to play with. But once you get to that size of capital, it's, it becomes a bit more difficult, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a different kind of... Um, it's certainly a different type of investing. So you are moving downstream. You're supporting more growth stage companies. So those are companies that come in with a preset, uh, a set of financials and data that you're making your decision off of. Whereas you have the luxury of playing in earlier stages when you're a smaller fund, uh, where the design space is wide open. You're indexing more on founder ability to recruit, storytell, and raise, um, as well as what the potential market is for this kind of product and seeing if you're right if it takes off, and then adjusting and iterating if you're wrong. You've been quite interested in the pseudo-economy and its development. Yes, absolutely. How are you investing there? Um, so in general, uh, there are uh, compliance and regulations around being able to invest in fully pseudonymous teams, um, given our structure as Is a Is it fund. illegal? It's, so you need to, um, like, you have to KYC, and you mm -hmm. do have to know, you, you do have to sign docs, and you do have to know who you are engaging with on the side of the table. So typically how we're seeing pseudonymous deals done is the, or, or investments in pseudonymous teams done is that is a few ways. One, um, it's a hybrid team. Mm -hmm. So the doxed, exactly, exactly. The, the doxed founders are the ones who are on the docs. Um, and then there's also uh, unstealthing to all those relevant stakeholders, but then being pseudonymous to the public at large. Um, we saw that in the case um, of the uh, base founders before their uh, BuzzFeed doxing. And, um, and that's typically the way, the way we're seeing it right now. So it's not fully pseudonymous, but what's mm -hmm. interesting is also the hiring. Of, yeah, of anons. You haven't so you, you, you haven't gotten your first anon yet. No, but we're we've been interviewing quite a few anons, um, and you're seeing them as a part of major crypto firms like um, Paradigm has had a couple, including Transmissions. A variant has Theos, mm -hmm. 
and, um, and, and these collectives of pseudonymous writers that have become some of the top financial writers on Substack, for instance, if you've been following Doomberg, mm-hmm. right? Of course. Um, and it's, it has a little bit of the culture DNA, similarly, again, of the 90s. Yeah. You know, internet those, hackers, yep. yeah. Um, and, and I truly, and I've said this before, it's just this is an incredible opportunity to really equalize the playing field. Like if you really critically think about it, this is the really the only way to judge and evaluate somebody based on merit. Like we talk about meritocracy. Yeah. I mean, this is really the purest, cleanest way to do it. There are no proxies for status that you can lean on, like the school you went to or, <laughs> you know, which social circles you have, you, you, you roll with. Um, it really is the work and, and the content that's being published or shipped. And, um, it's, and then, and then all that aside from a cultural standpoint, it's, it's pretty edgy and fun. It is fun. Well, thank you so much. We're going to have to do this again very soon. Do a part two. So where can, um, folks learn more about what you're working on and what Volt Capital is up to. Absolutely. And if they're an Anon and maybe want to apply for a job. (laughs) If you're an Anon or a docs person (laughs) and want to join our team, you can always apply jobs at Volt, V-O-L-T dot capital. You Um, say Anon, I say Anon. Oh, wow. Have you noticed that? No, it's the tomato, tomato of our space. Yeah, I guess Anon or Anon, or it's the finance, finance. Finance, yes. I'm firmly in the finance I do wonder if there's a correlation between people who say Anon and finance versus finance and Anon. I'd I'd be... It's probably a regional thing. We should also have that be a follow-up poll. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, So where can they find us? Yeah, and they can also find us on Twitter, at Volt Capital, um, or myself, at Suna, S-O-O-N-A. Thank you so much for having me on, Frank. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.